0: Meet the original Starman in the Golden Age Starman Archives Volume 1. Then it's time for another non-canonical adventure with the Incredibles in Revenge from Below. Straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. Well, we start off with the Golden Age Starman Archives, Volume 1. And these collect the first uh, 16 adventures uh, featuring the Golden Age Starman, Ted Knott. Starman is dressed in a pretty uh, solid red and green costume with a red uh, unitard, but green trunks and green boots and a yellow star on his chest. I do wonder why there isn't a Starman Christmas adventure out there, or certainly a Starman Christmas tree ornament. It'd be perfect, I digress, though. Uh, The uh, power of Starman really comes mostly from his gravity rod, which gathers power from uh, infrared rays from the stars. It's a handy device. It's able to allow Starman to fly, because, of course, gravity rod... But it can also move heavy objects and deflect bullets. Plus, the energy can be used to heat objects. I know a lot of people say that it's kind of a magic wand, and it kind of is. But in most cases, I'd say all but one case in this book, the uh, gravity rod's uses are at least plausible based on how it's described. Now, the first thing that you have to talk about when you talk about these early Starman books is the art. This book was published back in 2000, and the introduction is actually written by the artist Jack Burnley. And he provides some interesting details about how the uh, character was created. And it was simply a discussion between him and the comics uh, publisher... Coming up with uh, the idea. The covers are great too, but one thing he mentions in his introduction is that some of them ended up a bit off. Like you would get uh, action for Adventure Comics number 62 on the cover of Adventure Comics number 63. This is interesting, but it's not a huge problem uh, as a reader because we're reading it you know, in a collected edition and it's like reading a book and seeing the illustration. Plus, a lot of covers, particularly if you look at something like the covers to Superman-related books, uh, will have Superman doing things that don't happen anywhere within the comic. Now, the most annoying thing about the Golden Age Starman is the way his secret identity, Ted Knight is written. Most Golden Age superheroes had the same sort of thing, and you could probably trace it, to be honest, back to Zorro, where the hero's true identity would seem like a bit of a weakling, maybe a a bit of a fop, you know, interested in things that were not considered the most manly things around but using that to mask the fact that they were really a secret uh, hero of some sort. It was decided with Ted Knight, let's not do that. And I appreciate the idea of not doing the same thing, but they actually did something worse by having the secret identities way to cover being that he's constantly a hypochondriac. So instead of pretending just to be weak and a little unmanly, he pretends like he thinks he's always sick all the time. Of course, he has a girlfriend because A, he's rich, and B, women in comic books in the 1940s were obligated to hang around with men who they considered to have unattractive and unmanly attributes so that they could rail on them for that rather than finding a man who actually suited them. Because that's how life works. Now, I'm not going to discuss every story in this book. It's a little pointless when you're talking about Golden Age uh, comic collections. You have a mix here of science fiction and mystery plus a few fights against saboteurs that emerge as the US uh continued to get more and more on a on a war footing as our uh involvement in World War II neared. However, I'll talk about a few stories that did stand out to me. First of all is the menace of the lethal lot in issue 62, where you have a you know respected scientist sitting uh, in his office, and a mad scientist comes in and turns a shrink ray on him, and shrinks him, and leaves him in his office, uh, in revenge for uh, getting him kicked out of uh, ca- kicked out of a scientific uh, position. Uh, Starman uh, investigates. And he goes through the process of trying to find out, rescue people who had been shrunk, and he gets shrunk himself. However, really fortunately for Starman, he actually dropped his, uh, gravity rod, so he is able to pick it up and use it to defeat the villain and then reverse it. And at the end of the story, the light shrinks himself down, uh, to nothing and uh, appears to disappear. Uh, then we get to the mystery of the undersea terror in uh, issue 65 of Adventure Comics, where you have ships that are disappearing at sea. And uh, Starman investigates. He finds a ship that's been attacked, and he follows back some of the attackers to a submerged fortress. He is spotted arriving, and so uh, the villains... Uh, sick a giant octopus on him. And it's a great fight. And it turns out that this particular gang, the light is behind it. And the light uh, uh is able to capture him and seizes the gravity rod and plans to uh kill him. Unfortunately for the light, he presses the wrong button, which I guess is what you get for handling an unfamiliar weapon. And, uh, so in the end, uh, the lot is defeated. Then we get to Menace of the Invisible Raiders, uh, in issue 67, where you have these invisible thieves coming in and stealing, like, top secret document and, uh, documents and equipments. And the villain who's behind it is the Mist, who has got this, uh, bearded head, and it looks like a cloud surrounding him throughout the story. Uh, and it's revealed not to necessarily be that at the end, uh, but it's a pretty clever uh, re- uh, idea for a villain, and a villain who would come back and would play a big role in the modern uh, Starman stories, and be in other stories as well, as well as his uh, daughter. There is a little bit of silliness in this. For example, uh, Starman is fighting the villain, and we're told that uh, the villains defeated him. You know, off-panel, so that we can get to the point where Starman's the prisoner. And uh, they toss him off a cliff, and Starman thinks, Luckily, I have my gravity rod strapped to my wrist except uh, a couple panels later it was shown that uh he didn't have it on him at all uh where he would have been able to hold on to it so a little bit of inconsistency but still an intro uh, a nice introduction of a uh, new villain then we get uh the invaders from the future where a time machine has been built and it's stolen and uh in the midst of this, uh, Starman has to deal with an Electro-Thunder cannon, which is a really uh, cool design for this uh, cannon, which is able to obliterate uh, buildings. So he has got to uh, defeat it, and there are some really uh, strong uh, scenes in there. And it turns out that the same people who have stolen the time machine also have the electro thunder cannon. Uh, and they are, uh, uh, having their boss who is known as the unknown travel into the future to bring back, uh, people from the future to, uh, conquer the world. And, uh, it turns out in the midst of this, uh, Starman actually doesn't use his gravity rod much. You get to see a lot more of Starman just uh, knocking out uh, the thugs uh, using his physical strength. However, the Futurites arrive, and uh, he's not able to hit them, so he tries to use his gravity rod, and it's revealed that it's out of energy. And uh, it's revealed also that the unknown is actually the light. And he is able to get Starman tied up. And there is just some great shading on the way he's drawn. And he's going to kill Starman because things are getting dark at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But there's actually going to be a solar eclipse, which for some reason the light wasn't aware of. And that somehow recharges the gravity rod, which the light failed to take. And so Starman's able to get it, and he's able to overcome the light, and he faces off against the Futurites. And these men from the future, once one of them has their uh, protective gear pierced, dies immediately, and it turns out the men from the future are unable to breathe the air in the 20th century. And so they all flee back seems like a sort of war to the worlds thing, only it seems a bit more ridiculous here. And speaking of ridiculous, in issue 73 of Adventure Comics, we get the murders in space. And uh, a man is found dead in San Francisco uh, just a few hours after people saw him in New York. And so uh, Starman gets on to investigating it, and it turns out that it is a masked man who is shooting people up to, into space, and they die in space, and then their rockets carrying them crash back down to Earth at predetermined locations where thugs located and, in that area and hired by the mastermind take away the intact rockets so that the police find the body without explanation. Starman is able to escape from his rocket and save the person who was in another rocket about to be killed and reveal the identity of the actual mastermind, and it was the lieutenant governor! I never trust those lieutenant governor sorts myself, who had embezzled some state money maybe for an impractical rocketry program, and so needed to kill off uh, members of his family in order to inherit their fortune. This one is just amazingly goofy. And there's only one other story I highlight in there, uh, without going into too much detail, uh, where uh, actually there is a mad scientist who is making half-human, half-animal creatures, and Starman ends up with a lion's head, which is actually something that would happen uh, to Superman in the Silver Age, which is noteworthy. Uh, I will also say that Starman is able to change his head back to normal using the gravity rod, which is the least legitimate use of the rod uh, in uh, the this entire book. Overall, Starman's got typical golden age goofiness. It's hurt a little bit by the fact we don't get any origin story, that it's a scientific device and we're never told who invented it. It implies that uh, Ted Knight did, but we don't actually know for sure. But the art really does lift the book. Well, the stories are fairly typical of what you would get from uh, Gardner Fox, who wrote most of the stories in the book, all but two of them, the art is really beautiful to see. So, despite the annoyance about the secret identity, I'm going to give this one a rating of somewhat classy. Now we move on to The Incredibles, Revenge from Below. As I said before, uh any of these comics uh that were released before Incredibles 2 have to be considered non-canon just because they took a very different uh approach to what happened uh at the end of the previous movie. So in this particular book, uh they're fighting a, a supervillain with uh uh hypnotic powers named Mesmerella. In the course of the fight, Mr. Incredible tells Dash to pull Violet to safety after she had been taken over by Mesmerella. But instead, Dash goes on the offensive and just about defeats Mesmerella, who responds by pushing Violet off the building that they're fighting on. Dash is able to rescue Violet, but gets chewed out by his dad in a very lengthy lecture. And his mom comes up behind him and gives him an injection that takes away his superpowers until they say otherwise. Which really seems an overreaction. And incredibly, uh, no pun intended there, (laughs) out of character for the Incredibles. But there's a reason for this. As uh, Dash is uh, going about his day and going to school, he notices that the teacher is an alien. And he tries to tell his parents they won't listen, and so he runs away. And he goes and meets Edna Mode. Now, at this point, the story's been kind of downbeat, and I wasn't really into it. But the Edna Mode scene is just hilarious. Both the writers Landry Walker and Mark Wade do a great job capturing her character, and the art is pretty good too. And uh, it's taking him down the stairs of her house into this uh, secret place under her under there, and she says to him. What I am about to show you, it is never to be discussed, not with your parents, not with your sister, not with Frozone, not with any future sidekicks, no one. Uh, swear! I swear, I swear to keep your secrets. And then she waves her, puts her hand up casually. Ah, no sense of humor. I joke. Tell whomever you like. And I'm just like, that is classic Edna, and really, uh, well done. It turns out uh, that she has a watch for him that will allow him to be able to detect aliens. And he is going to be able to use her secret basement as his uh, lair to investigate what they're doing. He makes himself a new outfit with a rocket pack and has discarded his old Incredibles uniform. Violet finds her way down there and ask what about the new outfit, and he explains that their old outfit had uh, homing devices and such in it, and he's not really trusting his parents. Which turns out to be justified, as he finds out that aliens are controlling uh, his uh, parents. And he ends up actually being captured by them and by the aliens, but ends up being rescued by Violet, who leads him to what looks like a rocket ship, but instead of going up, goes down, because it turns out that the vessel's owned by the Underminer, the underground villain who appeared at the end of The Incredibles movie. And he explained that while he has a big problem with what he calls surfers, or uh, what I guess Namor would call surface dwellers, He doesn't want aliens taking over the planet because then they would come to his realm as well. Unfortunately, the alliance is short-lived as the aliens are able to seize control of Violet's mind and invade the ship uh, along with his parents, and the Underminer abandons them. And after fighting with the aliens a bit, Dash crashes and finds out he's in his own mind and trying to save Violet. And here I'll go into, like, major spoilers of the whole plot. But it turns out he's actually still on the roof that he was in at the first scene of the book. And he is able to snap out of his trance, save Violet, and defeat Mesmerella. And we learn at the end of the story that Doc Sunbright uh, thinks that when Dash got mesmerized... He got into a trance, but his mind was still moving so fast that he had this really lengthy dream that went over the course of days. Then you have a bit of a disagreement between Bob and Helen over the kids using their powers. Bob's arguments are, in my mind, a bit better because he makes the point that it's not just a point of keeping the kids safe or keeping them happy, but you have to have a combination of the two. Plus, there would be a tendency, if they aren't encouraged to use their powers with the adults around, that they'll use them on their own and be in even more danger without supervision. Though I'm not sure if a dad is actually allowed to be right in modern uh, literature. There are a few other bits at the end that do hint at uh, some events later on down the line. Overall, I started out really not liking this book until I understood what was going on. And when you understand that, this is actually really a good book. Oftentimes, there's a writing rule against having stories end, and it was all a dream. And that is generally a rule against stories where a writer wants to have their cake and eat it too. They want to tell a story and have things happen to the character that are really uh, challenging or really would take the character in another direction, but then to have no actual consequences of doing that. This isn't one of those stories. This calls to mind the Batman the Animated Series episode involving Scarecrow putting Bruce Wayne into a dream world. That story revealed a lot about Bruce Wayne's desires and what drove him and who he was as a character. And I think in a similar way, this story does that with Dash. What we see in the course of the story is a lot of his fears. The fear of not measuring up as a hero, and disappointing and being disapproved of by his parents. The fear of not being fast enough in order to save the people he cares about. And still that desire to be the hero. Mark Wade co-wrote this, and he definitely had a lot of preparation and ability to write Dash. He had written the Wally West version of The Flash for the DC Universe. And you can see uh, some shadow of that in the way that he writes Dash. It provides a lot of character insight into Dash and makes for a pretty enjoyable read with some of its surrealistic moments and some of the humor. And Edna Mode just really... Ups the fun of the volume, even though she's only in it for like six pages. Whatever the medium, if she is well-written and she's captured correctly, she's such a joy to have in the story. The one thing that I would kind of be concerned about is that this particular book was written for kids and was actually released as single issues. So I kind of wonder... whether kids would be able to follow it and stay around. And I would be nervous, too, telling a story like this when a kid could just decide, you know, I don't want to read the next issue of Mr. Incredible being really mean to Dash. But the story is nonetheless a good one. So I'll give the volume a rating of classy. And of course, uh, we gave... The Golden Age Starman, Volume 1, a rating of somewhat classy, despite some problems with that book. The art really carries the book, and there's some uh, Golden Age goofiness, plus we get to meet a pretty cool villain in the mist. And of course, The Incredibles Revenge from Below gets a rating of classy for some great character insight into Dash. Well, that's all for now. If you do have a comment, email to me, ClassyComicsGuy at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ClassyComicsGuy. And be sure and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. But from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.